When a car's fuel tank is not installed correctly, when gas pedals become stuck, when tire treads separate from the steel belts inside them, bad things happen. Accidents occur. People die. When it is shown to be the auto manufacturer's fault, there's a huge outcry, and they are forced to act, admit guilt, and recall the damaged product. The auto manufacturer designed and created the product. Car bears their name. They are responsible. They have to make it right. There we go. Famous. One of the more famous recalls. Yes, that's the famous Pinto, whose fuel tanks had problems causing the car to burst into flames. That's what you get for naming a car after a bean, right? Right. I also love that it's orange. I just think that's the perfect, perfect color. When an architect and builder work together to create a skyscraper, they bear a responsibility to provide a pinpoint design, choose the right materials, install those materials to near perfection, ensure that the building has structural integrity. People walk into a skyscraper, take the elevator to the 45th floor, and they trust They trust that a million small processes have come together so they can safely ride down the same elevator and go about their day. If something were to go wrong, if that structure collapsed, if people died, we would all agree the architect or builder is responsible to make it right. In the financial world, there are tens of millions of dollars spent to make sure and to create financial reports. Without these reports, the markets would crumble. Stockholders would quickly lose their trust in the business world. So there are accountants. They are paid millions of dollars to make sure all funds coming and going are properly accounted for. They make sure things are reported correctly. They make sure the right controls Procedures are in place. These big four companies put their stamp of approval on those reports. And if they are proven wrong, or if shady practices were known and allowed to continue, their reputation is tarnished. The company's reputation is tarnished. Stockholders suffer. People lose their jobs. And they bear a responsibility to make it right. We see this everywhere, the act of creating or building, whether it's physical property or intellectual property. Something's created, something's designed, something's offered, and people place their trust in it. Now, in the same way, well, here's actually, here's the big point that I'm making. The big idea is that there is a responsibility when you create. In the same way, God, who created this world, who made us in his image, maintains a responsibility and an authority for this world. As creator, he maintains a responsibility to bring this product, planet Earth, to completion, to finish what he has started, to make right what has gone wrong. Now, our analogy does break down a little bit here because God is not the cause of the wrongdoing. 
though he will correct and eventually end it. But when it is all said and done, God will not abandon what he has created. He will bring everything into account, so to speak, and fulfill his responsibility. This is a theme throughout the scriptures that's developed over the scriptures. In Psalm 98, here is a song. Psalm 98, beginning in verse 6, says, With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing together for joy before the Lord, for He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Here the writer is anticipating a future day when the king, the creator, will return. And he's rejoicing before this king because he will judge the world with fairness. He will restore it back to its original purpose. He pictures even creation itself, the rivers and the hills, in a word place, so to speak. But he pictures them rejoicing because even the physical creation has suffered injustice at the hands of mankind. It's an amazing picture. Now this truth is really important for us to understand because before we read our text this morning, without this backdrop of God as creator, a God who has responsibility and authority, a God who brings everything into account so evil can be judged, if we don't really get that, the words of Jesus will not make much sense to us. So, let's read them, and then we'll unfold how the dots connect. Will you stand? I'm going to begin in verse 21, Matthew 7. If you want to read from the Pew Bible, it's page 812. Here's what Jesus said. Not everyone who says of me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name or, and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house. But it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against the house. And it fell, and great was the fall of it. When Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. This is God's word. Pray with me. Father, um, with the help of your spirit, we ask you please to help us understand what these words mean and how they apply to us. Father, whatever might hinder us this morning, whatever happened 
on the way here, whatever is coming here in the next several hours. Father, don't, don't let us miss this moment where we gather as the visible church and we ask you to come into this place and reveal your presence and your power and to speak to us through your words. Father, for the next 30 or so minutes, help us to focus, to do what we can on our part, to pay and to incline our hearts to what you want to say to us. These are sobering words, Father. Help us to know what they mean and help us to respond to them. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Take a seat. Here's the outline for this this morning. What I see here is there's a protest, number one. Number two, there's a judge. Number three, there's a test. And number four, there's a sentence. And after we've gone through all those, we'll ask, what does it mean? How How can we tie this together? First, there is a protest. Look at verse 21 again. What's really going on here? We're kind of catching this conversation midstream. And these individuals are protesting a judgment that has been made, a response. And in their response, there is an emphatic plea. Lord, we did these mighty and powerful things and we did them in your name. How could you not receive us into your kingdom? This exchange, I believe, has meaning uh, for three different groups. And the first is for that group there who had begun to follow Jesus. If you look in verse 13, a little up, uh, Jesus is moving towards concluding the sermon. And he urges those listeners to enter by the narrow gate. And then in verse 15, if you look at that, he next urges them to watch out for false prophets or false teachers or counterfeits. They will need to be discerning if they're going to stay on that narrow path. There were counterfeits then, there are counterfeits today. For them, our religion, for certain leaders, for certain leaders... Religion has been and is a pretext for personal gain. And that's what's happening here with these individual leaders who are making this protest. And so for Christians, Jesus saying is be discerning to this first group. Be discerning. And look for the kind of fruit that is not measured in the limelight, but is measured sort of out of the, out of the limelight. Sensational demonstrations do not necessarily mean intimate connection with Jesus. Now, the second group here and second meaning is for leaders, someone like me. This passage calls leaders to never leave your first love. Always remain a follower of Jesus first. And so the application for leaders is self-examination. For leaders, there is the exhilaration of ministry. There's the challenge of building an organization. There's gaining head knowledge about Jesus or the Bible. All of these can replace a leader's simple 
and pure devotion to Jesus. For me, I personally love the leadership challenge of like building an organization. It, it can sound odd, but I really enjoy that. Gathering up people, gathering up resources, looking at the end goal, and then trying to move everybody in a singular direction to row the same direction to get there, to accomplish something good. It can be really, really satisfying. And for me, the challenge and thrill that can wrap its tentacles around my heart, it can become a core identity, a core way of seeing myself. Now, the only problem with that is that there's always someone who does it better. (laughs) There's always someone who has better outcomes. And then, if that's the way you see yourself, you get pretty disheartened, get pretty discouraged. You want to You want to quit. As a leader, I can forget I'm a follower of Jesus first. My role as a pastor is important, but it is not primarily who I am. It is not my primary identity. I am a lover of Jesus and a follower of Christ, a son of God first. Now, the third group is really all of us, all of us. While the judgment here primarily addresses false leaders and is intended to help Christians to be attracted to the right kind of fruit, there is a message here for all of us. We read this morning the conclusion of the message with yet one more metaphor. We've had some mixed metaphor here as English teachers. Here's one more picture of two different houses. And it's interesting with that particular picture, the force of the message turns from unsound Leaders to unsound listeners. And that's all of us. That's you and me. All of us. The Bible says quite clearly that, as we'll see, we will all have, we will each have a conversation with God at the end of our lives talking about how we invested our life. So this message indeed has something for all of us. So, first point is... There's a protested decision. We catch this conversation midstream. And if there was a protest, there must also be a judge. Who is the judge? Who is the judge? Many of you are familiar with the stories of Jesus. You know Jesus as the friend of sinners. You know him as teacher. You know him as miracle worker. You know him as savior. You even know him as Lord. But how many times when we think of Jesus do we think of him as judge? As a judge. Yet amazingly here in this passage, who is given the right to determine your final destiny? It's a remarkable claim. It's it's Jesus. It's Jesus. Could this possibly be? If the claims of the Bible and the claims of Jesus himself are true, the evidence is abundant. There are multiple references to Jesus as judge in the New Testament. It has been the historic teaching of the church. It's not privy to one denomination. It's not even uh, excluded to one sector of the Christian church. The Catholic, the Orthodox, and the Protestant church groups all teach this same thing. It is in all the ancient creeds. 
as we read this morning. It's not the teaching of one pastor. It's not eccentric. Think of what this means if he is the judge. And we might think, well, okay, I can maybe, as hard as it is to get my head around, I can maybe think of Jesus as maybe judge of the church. But is he judge of all people? That seems too difficult to grasp. Look at Matthew 25, verse 31, page 830. Jesus said these things, speaking of himself, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Now, this is a very simple picture that could have been taken from any village of Nazareth at that time. After grazing all day, the shepherd led the flocks back home and separated them for the evening. I bumped into someone else's research this week. It's, it's really interesting. This person discovered that in North America, sheep and goats are easily distinguishable due to specialization through our breeding. Right? You can tell sheep and goats apart. Sheep are those kind of fun, woolly, fluffy things. And goats are not. Not quite as attractive. Um, you don't usually see you know, goats show up in various kids' things. But this person says that actually, however, through history, through history, and even today in parts of Asia and Africa where that breeding is not taking place, sheep and goats are almost identical. Almost identical. And no one but a shepherd can easily tell the difference. So the application here for the parable seems to be that outward conformity or being part of the herd isn't all that's required of us. There is something that only our shepherd can see in us. And that unseen unseen thing tells God whether we are sheep or goats. It determines whether God sorts us to the left or to the right. Let me get back to that question. That's an interesting picture. But the question was, is Jesus only the judge of the church? Look at the first thing he says. There, how does he refer to himself? Jesus applies to himself a very distinct title, Son of Man. It was actually the favorite title that he referenced himself with. It conveys great dignity. But the point is, is that it meant that his origin was not from here. That his origin was from heaven. And that is important. Because it grounds his authority in creating every human being. And thus every human being has a responsibility to him. And of course, what does he say? All nations will be gathered unto me. Now, this is a remarkable claim. And we might begin to scratch our heads thinking, boy, does Jesus, just, is he kind of stretching here too deeply? <laughs> Is he, is he really mean what he says? It's staggering. Uh, if we had no prior context as to the identity of Christ, 
we would quickly conclude either he's sent from God or he is insane. And we need to commit him somewhere or cart him off. It's ironic, isn't it, that people all over the world applaud the ethics of the Sermon on the Mount. Some say it is the highest ethical teaching ever produced. I'm just not sure they fully understood the part of this, this part of the sermon. I'm not quite sure it would be so wildly applauded if they understood this. Jesus being judge of the world, of course, implies that he has an intimate knowledge of everyone. He sees their hearts. He weighs their motives. He evaluates their motives such that he's able to judge them fairly. Who is this Jesus? It presumes he shares the quality with God called omniscience. It's a fancy theological term for all-knowing. In 2015, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I said this wrong. 2005, said it wrong, first service. 2005, Doris Kearns Goodwin wrote the book Team of Rivals regarding Abraham Lincoln and his his, uh, his cabinet, and uh, they were once rivals and how they worked together. I read the book and saw the movie. Spielberg did a movie in 2014. Great movie. Daniel Day-Lewis, here you see, played Lincoln. Do you know how many books were written about Lincoln before this one? It's estimated about 15,000. And you ask the question, how could we possibly learn like one more thing about Lincoln? And yet, many of us found the book and the movie very compelling. Open up new insights about Lincoln. I've been married 30 years to uh, my bride. And you know, you think you know everything. And then last week, she shared something about her childhood that was really intriguing. And I, I, I said, I never knew that about you. I never understood you that you did that. We uh, caught up again last night and talked about it. And I said, hey, I want to share this as an illustration at church. And what was that thing that you did? She couldn't remember and nor could I. So it's, I don't know what it is. I just don't know what it is. It's not good. But I, I promise you it was new. It was new. So there's a protest. There's a judge. The next thing, if there's a judge, there must be a test. There must be a standard that's applied. What's the issue at stake? Well, we've already seen that doing ministry in Jesus' name or demonstration of power, demonstrations of power, does not pass the test on its own merit. Secondly, we can add to that that a verbal profession alone does not pass the test. The individuals in this story know the name of the Lord. They, they, know him, they know him by name. Lord, Lord. They know his name. That was not enough. Finally, thirdly, we can add mere intellectual knowledge does not pass the test. In the picture of the two houses, it is not the person who merely acknowledges the truth whose house is built on the rock but the person who acts on the truth. What is the test? What is the test? Again, look at verse 21. It's right there. 
It is the one who does the will of my father. And how do we do the will of the father? It's in verse 24. By acting on his words. It is pursuing the true righteousness that Jesus has outlined in the previous two chapters. It is worship that draws us into close connection with God. It is seeking first his kingdom. The will of the Father is brought home to us, made clear to us, through the words of Jesus. The words of Jesus pencil out for us in outline form the will of God for our lives. They provide a framework for building our house on a solid foundation. Each time we come back to Jesus. Again, think of what a remarkable claim this is. Now, this might be confusing for some of us. I thought we were saved by grace. Isn't that what we've said many times? We're not saved by what we do. Yet here the Bible teaches by Jesus' own words that our final destination is determined by our works. There's a tension in Scripture that we must balance. Yes, we are saved by faith, but we are judged by our works. Notice what the scriptures say on the final judgment say about how we are tested. And you can write down these verses for your own research. We can't cover them today. But the judgment scenes in the Bible are a judgment of what we have done. Matthew sixteen twenty seven. Matthew twenty five thirty one through forty six. John five twenty nine. Romans two six and eight. First Corinthians three six three ten through sixteen. Second Corinthians five six through ten. And Revelation twenty verses twelve and thirteen. Sometimes when Jesus is presented, the gospel is presented, the message heard is, if I pray this simple prayer to receive Christ, I am safe and secure. One commentator said about this, that far too many are trusting in a one-time decision, but show no marks of discipleship. We can treat that prayer like fire insurance rather than what it ought to be, which is a commitment of the heart. The prayer to receive Christ or even a baptism or even becoming a church member can all be placed on a dusty shelf and never incorporated into daily life. The feeling is once I have prayed this prayer, I never have to do anything else. I can, continue to, I can continue to live my life the way I've always lived it, keeping my goals and my wants as the central force of my life. Friends, I want to tell you, this is not right. This is not the gospel. I am not disputing the complete sufficiency of Jesus to save us. And that we come to him by his grace and he saves us by grace. We are saved by Christ. But Christ saves us unto being his follower, his disciple, doing the will of the Father by responding to Jesus' words. There are some sections of Scripture 
that emphasize genuine faith translates. Genuine faith means action. This is one of them. And we need to let the full force of this hit us. In the big picture of the scriptures, many of these hard passages were given to the Jews who had felt who felt entitled in their relationship with God. Through the centuries they began many times they took God for granted. They needed to be made uncomfortable. Some of the great scriptures emphasizing grace were given to the Gentiles in the early years of their conversion. When for the first time they were welcomed into a covenant relationship with God, they needed to hear the sweet music of grace. Well, friends, the same is true with us today. Now, by the way, please understand, I do not claim any special knowledge of anyone's heart in this room. I have no words from God on that. This chapter began with Jesus urging us to judge not, because that would be playing the role of God. So I'm not going to do that. Interesting enough, Jesus does, by the way. But for many of us, for many of us, our world has included growing up in the culture of the church. You've done ministry for God. You've grown up in great families. You've attended everything. But you have taken God and your standing with him for granted. The force of this passage should disturb you. It should. It should make you fear. And for some, it should bring a much needed awakening. Others of you are coming from a place where you were so far from God and so disconnected from the church that you needed to hear a message of grace that welcomed you home. You were complete strangers to God. And now he welcomes you home as sons or daughters. If this is your case, friend, stay with us. Because as we teach through the books of the Bible, this emphasis will naturally emerge. By sticking with the scriptures, we can keep the tension of this important balance in place. So, who passes the test? The one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. The one who responds to Jesus' words. Everything keeps pointing back to him. So, we have a protest, we have a judge, we have a test, and finally, the last part of our scene is we have a sentence. That only makes sense. The defendant's protest does not move the judge. They're guilty of lawlessness, which in another place of Matthew refers to a cold heart. The love of God is not in these individuals. Their foundation was built on sand. Their motives exposed under the spotlight, the the hot light of judgment. And just as in a courtroom, the dejected defendant walks away in disgrace and shame It's an awful thing, really. It's an awful thing, facing the prospect of punishment. Um, You know, and again, I'm not suggesting it's not for good reason, but think of what we do to to convicted felons. We shave their heads. We put them in different kinds of clothing. We we shackle their feet. We we put handcuffs on their hands. 
There's a certain shame there. There's a certain shame. There's a calling out. We give them different license plates. It's an awful thing. Exiled from friends, exiled from family, exiled from a free life. And so we might be tempted to ask here, but is the, is the sentence just? Does it fit the crime? We're tempted to feel sorry for these protesters. We might think they've been unfairly judged. Does the punishment fit the crime? To answer that, we have to answer this question. What is the nature of heaven? What is heaven? What is that final destination? We get a little bit of a, we get some glimpses of it from the Bible's final book, the book of Revelation. Particularly in chapters 4 and 5, we get a picture of God sitting on his throne. He's surrounded by various angelic beings. And these 24 elders who represent the people of God through history. Now it's quite clear that they enjoy being close to him. They're not running away. They worship him. It's obvious they are in love with Christ. The rewards that they've gained in this life, they freely give back to him. The attraction of heaven is God. And so if a person has spent their entire lives pushing God out, despite every obstacle God puts in their way to connect them to him, Why is it unjust in the end if they are excluded from the kingdom of heaven? In the Old Testament, God held to a pattern of providing witnesses before he brought judgment. And in many cases, also hundreds of years. For every human being, the Bible teaches, there are signposts of God all along the way. There is the beauty and perfect nature of his that is revealed through creation. There is the quiet voice of conscience. There are people reaching out to us. There's the scriptures. There are experiences that reveal our limitations. Every human being has clear opportunities to respond to God based on the light he gives and cry out to him. If all that is rejected, how can we say God is unjust? In judgment, isn't he giving people what they wanted all along, which is pure, unfettered freedom from him? I want to be free of you, God. And God, after giving up, God, after many, many efforts, finally says, okay, you have your wish. The judge, the test, the sentence, they all point to and revolve around the person of Jesus. Even the protest that our friends make here, even the protest that they make is only based on the fear of punishment and avoiding the consequences. So, if all of this points to Christ, we have to ask, who in the world is he? (laughs) Who is he? Who says these kinds of things? This is why they were so astonished at his message. No sermon is ever given like this. No pastor ever speaks this way. Every teaching they had, no one ever spoke the way he did. They were amazed. But let's go back. Let's go back to the beginning of the message. God is creator. 
Who is Christ? Who is Christ? John's biography of Jesus answers the question in his prologue. John 1, verses 1 through 3. It's page 886 in your pew Bible. John said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And if you look down in verse 14, John identifies who is this Word. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word was Jesus. He was with God from the beginning, and He is God. He is the Creator. And so it is only right, indeed, Jesus must accept the responsibility to bring everything into account, to right wrongs, to end injustice, to judge the world, and to restore it to its original purpose. And forever who's willing, to ever who is willing to follow him back to the Garden of Eden, which had been lost. This is why they were so astonished. And yet, what even they couldn't see in that moment, and if they could have seen it, they would have even been more astonished, is this, that Jesus did something else. And that is in this incident, in this case, this time the judge, this time the judge took off his robes. And in contemporary terms, he put on an orange jumpsuit. This time... This time the judge got down from his stand and they shaved his head. This time, rather than the judge deciding the case and leaving it and going about his day, this judge gave his hands to be put in handcuffs and gave his feet to be put into shackles. This time the judge became a common criminal. And he faced the kind of disconnection, the kind of exile the kind of shame that we put on a common criminal, he absorbed it and he became that. The judge, the creator. Isaiah from the Old Testament in predicting what the Messiah would do for his people said this about the future Jesus. Isaiah wrote 700 years before Christ. He said, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. The perfect one. The one without sin understood what it was like to receive a sentence, to feel shame, to be exiled. Isaiah went on to say that his life was cut short midstream. He was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He was punished. He was punished. So if we follow him, you would never have to experience an exile that you deserve. The commutation of a sentence that you deserve and that I deserve. That's what Jesus Christ did. The creator. The judge. What difference does it all make? If the claims of Christ are true, if the Bible is true, it all comes down to what will you do with Jesus? What will you do with him? There is no middle ground here. And we prefer gradations. <laughs> We like a judgment a little more complex. We prefer to be graded on a curve. 
We like to think of ourselves on a ladder, a couple rungs ahead of the guy below us. But it's quite clear that this is a pass-fail test. Will you do the Father's will by acting on the words of Jesus? Ten times in the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, we see the word do or practice. The lesson is clear. Genuine faith, true righteousness, the house built on the rock, puts feet to the ground. Let's pray. Father, I pray that my friends here, each of them, would understand where your words are hitting them and would understand where you're speaking. Father, help each of us. Help each of us. Lord, particularly for those of us who've already put our faith in you to believe these words. To believe these words. They were spoken by Jesus. Meant to wake us up. Lord, some of us in this room are sleeping. Father, some of us in this room are dead spiritually. And you, by your spirit and your power, want to make us alive. Father, for that person who has lived a life feeling entitled to you. For that person, Father, who is spiritually dead, might they turn to you in this moment to become spiritually alive, to say, Jesus, I'm committing my life to you. I'm committing my heart to you. I won't be perfect. I know there'll be ups and downs. But from this day forward, I'm going to run towards you, not away from you. I refuse to be neutral any longer. I'm going to follow you. Father, for the rest of us, make us discerning as Christians. Help us to look for the right kind of fruit in the people that we follow. Let us look, Father, for fruit not in the limelight but in the quiet of relationships, in the quiet of how we treat one another. Particularly, Father, how we treat those that that can't give anything back to us. As Christians, let us be discerning to stay on that narrow path, to enter by the narrow gates. And so, now we commit all this to you, Father, and we want to sing and to pray to give of our resources, to show that you're first in our lives. But first, God, let us give our hearts to you in worship, in song, in prayer. For some, Father, this may be a rededication, a renewal in our hearts to once again serve you, to respond to your words, to do your will for the glory of Christ.